morning, everybody. Well, again, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and part of the teaching team here. And I don't know if you notice this each week as you come in, especially if you come from the east, it might be easier to miss. But there's a pretty cool construction project happening next door. And it's fun to see the progress, isn't it? Isn't it pretty neat? And uh, I, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for your generosity. We hit a cool milestone recently, which was uh, that you have given now more than one and a half million dollars to that project. And uh, that's really pretty cool. Yeah, you can clap for that too. It's uh, our goal has been $1.8 million. You've surpassed 1.5, and I just thank you for your generosity, and it's really cool to see the fruit of some of that generosity. And, uh, and I just want to encourage us to be praying for the people who are working there. I actually saw an Instagram video someone posted the other day, one of the guys up on the roof who's working on the roof, and I, I you know, just replied to him and said, hey, thank you. Like, the people of Redemption Gateway, we appreciate the craftsmanship and the skill and the work that you're doing. And so let's actually take a moment and let's, uh, let's pray for the folks working on that project even now. Father, thank you for how you provide for us. Thank you for how you've allowed the people of this church to be so generous, to be able to uh, create space for people who aren't here yet, for people who don't know you yet, for the next generation of people to meet and know and follow Jesus. And God, thank you for all of the skilled people, the men and women who are working on that project and making it uh, the excellent project it is. We pray, God, that you would give them protection, that you would give them endurance, that you'd give them skill, and uh, that they would be able to work efficiently and effectively. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're talking today about work, and I'm curious for you, what's the worst job you've ever had? Some of you I know just like you instantly go, oh, well, I know that. Some of you are like, well, gosh, I've done a lot of really bad jobs. <laughs> What is the worst one? you got to kind of think it through. I don't, I don't know what your worst job you've had. The worst job for me was probably right after I got out of college. I moved out here, and I was just eager to get a job. And so I took a job at a publishing company to do data entry. And this publishing company was trying to move stuff to online and, and different stuff like that. And so my job was they had all these CDs with images and files. And they, I had to put this, the CDs and the DVDs into a computer see what was on the, in the files, and then catalog it in a like, Microsoft Excel document for eight hours a day. Now, I know some of you would love that job. Some of you are like, that sounds perfect. No one would talk to me. I could just do lots of detail-oriented things. That was not a great fit for me. Um, but I did it, and I worked hard, and I, I tried to do a good job. And I think maybe I did do a good job because actually the woman who was my boss there now goes to church here. So I guess I didn't totally lose you know, her respect or whatever. But that was you know, not the worst job in the world, but, but a hard job for me. I, I don't know what the hardest job you've ever had is. My guess is it's not as bad as some of these jobs. Here's one. This is a cat food tester. <laughs> this guy's pretty decked out for it, though. I mean, he's fired up. He knew his picture was getting taken today. So he's... He's uh, tasting some cat food. You also see uh, this next one, and I don't, I don't know if that's a toe jam remover or what exactly. I don't know where you get those kind of hobbit feet, but if you have them, thank God for people that do that sort of job. Uh, the next one, this one's pretty amazing. This is a person being lowered down into sewage. And frankly, I don't know if they're being lowered down or if they're being lowered up. But did someone lose a wedding ring or like what, what happened there? This next one's... Uh, Kind of a rough one. You don't want to be doing that with an elephant. And then the last job that you're glad you don't have is this one. This poor fellow, I don't know if he got volunteered or voluntold, but he's holding the target practice. 
And uh, so, so whatever your job is, it's not as bad as those, all right? So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. I, I was reading some research, actually, that said about half, 49% of Americans, are very satisfied with their jobs. I thought, wow, that's actually higher than I would have thought. So maybe about half of you really like your job. Uh, statistics would say about 30% of Americans are in a job they'd go, eh, I'm just doing this to do it. It's just a job to, to do it while I kind of look for something else. And then 15% really are dissatisfied with their work. I also realize there's a lot of you who you work and you have a job, but no one's paying you to do it. <laughs> You're not employed by anybody, but you have a daily set of responsibilities that you have to look after and take care of. And so wherever you are, the question today is how, how might the gospel reshape your approach to work? Maybe you're in that 15% that just hates what you do. How could the gospel reshape your approach in that? Maybe you're in the 49% that loves what you get to do. How could the gospel reshape your approach? That's what we're going to look at. Now, this section of scripture that we're in here at the end of chapter 5 and now into chapter 6, we've kind of called this little section the spirit-filled life. And it began back in chapter 5, verse 18. So if you have your Bible, you can swipe over to 518. And what you'll find there is it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The Apostle Paul is saying, listen, something's going to run your life. Something's going to fill your life. Something's going to animate and control your life. And it shouldn't be alcohol. It shouldn't be medication. It shouldn't be drugs. It shouldn't be some other substance. What should control you is the Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, listen, if you're filled with the Spirit, what he says from here is that it leads to a whole new life. First, it leads to a new kind of praise. Look at verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So it's new praise. It's also new gratitude. Look at verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, without the Spirit, you can give thanks for the stuff you like. With the Spirit, you can give thanks for everything. It leads to a new kind of humility. Look at verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. When you don't have the Spirit, you just got to win, and you got to have your way, and it's got to be what you want. When you have the Spirit, you're eager to say, you know what, I'll submit to you. No, you go first. What do you want? That sort of approach. So a new praise, a new gratitude, a new humility. It also then leads to a new approach to marriage. And that's what we saw at the end of chapter 5 in verses 22 to 33, that you have this new dynamic where rather than husband and wife jockeying for rights and jockeying for power, they're serving and loving one another. You see a new approach to parenting in chapter 6, verse 4. There it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Listen, without the Spirit of God, you go, you know what, I'm, I'm the parent, and I just am in charge, and I don't care what my kid feels about it. I don't care what they like. I don't care what they need. I just am going to do what I want to do. No, no, not when you have the Spirit. You're still in charge. You're still responsible. But you don't provoke them. What that word means is to do things that you know is going to cause them to resent you. That's what we looked at last week. You don't do that. Rather, you guide them, you nurture them in the discipline, the instruction of the Lord. When you have the Spirit of God, it makes all things new. So it makes sense then that Paul is going to now turn to work. 
and say, if you're filled with the Spirit of God, it changes how you work and specifically how you relate to authority, whether you don't have it or whether you do. Now, before we dive into this, I want to give a little bit of a parenthesis because there may have been a word that jumped out to you even as Mark read it, and you may have even started to wrestle with, or maybe you've been asked questions about the issue of slavery. That's the context that Paul's talking about. Uh, I'm using the ESV, and that first word could be translated bond servants. That might be what your Bible says. It might also be what Mark read, which was slaves. So this section, verses 5 to 8, is addressed to slaves, people in slavery. Verse 9, addressed to their masters. That raises a pretty interesting question. Paul doesn't here advocate for eliminating slavery. Why not? And we kind of wish he would. Why doesn't he do that? He doesn't say, slaves, rebel, because you shouldn't be in slavery. And he doesn't say, masters, give this whole thing up because you shouldn't own people. We kind of wish he would do that, but he doesn't do that. Instead of trying to deconstruct the whole thing, he instead says, here's how to be faithful in the midst of it. And, and actually next week when he looks at the powers and principalities, I think maybe he has in mind what is eventually going to undo those sorts of things, but he doesn't talk about it. So I want to just address that for a moment. I've actually written an article that's on our website that pulls from a lot of research I've done on this this week that just answers that question, why didn't Paul seek to abolish this? Let me give you a, a summary. Uh, is that slavery, first of all, was universal in the ancient world. There were approximately 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. That's a lot of people. The majority of the workforce were slaves. And it wasn't just servants and laborers, though it was that. It also included teachers, included doctors, included administrators, people that had sort of high-skill jobs. It was different in some important ways from what we think of as colonial or New World slavery. First of all, in the ancient world, and especially in Rome, in the Roman Empire, during Paul's day while he's writing this, race wasn't a factor. You weren't enslaved because of race. Nor were slaves attained most of the time through kidnapping. That occasionally happened, but most of the time in the Roman Empire, slaves became slaves because they had a debt they couldn't pay, and so they had to be enslaved for a time. Or because they voluntarily entered into it. Maybe there was a particular industry that they wanted to do, and it was almost like an apprenticeship type thing where eventually they would work their way out of it. Sometimes you were born into slavery. But it didn't usually happen through kidnapping. That's very different than colonial slavery, which was literally kidnapping people and taking them to a different continent. Most slaves in the Roman Empire were emancipated by about 30 years old. They often gained citizenship. So there are some key differences, but but make no mistake. It's still slavery. It's still one human being owning another human being. There was a lot of mistreatment. There was a lot of cruelty. And it wasn't just mistreatment and cruelty in the Roman Empire, but even Christians for the next few thousand years would justify their cruelty and their mistreatment even with passages like this. They go, you know what? Well, Paul never said we should get rid of it. They would use a passage like this to justify that. What do we make of that? Well, John Stott is a commentator who has written a very helpful book along the way for me on Ephesians. Here's what he says about this. He says, we Christians 
cannot escape a sense of shame that slavery and the slave trade were tolerated for so long, especially later in the European colonies. Both, that's slavery and the slave trade, both should have been abolished centuries before they were, and the best Christian minds recognize this. Calvin, for example, John Calvin, in the middle of the 16th century, attributed slavery to original sin. He deduced it to be a, a thing totally against all the order of nature, that human beings fashioned after the image of God should ever be put to such reproach. While we cannot defend the indolence or cowardice of two further Christian centuries, that's after the 1600s, which saw this social evil but failed to eradicate it, this is key, we can at the same time rejoice that the gospel immediately began, even in the first century, to undermine the institution. It lit a fuse which at long last led to the explosion which destroyed it. That, that last phrase is key. Because what Paul's doing in Ephesians 6 is he's lighting a fuse that eventually is going to dismantle slavery altogether. Because what he's saying is that whether you're a slave or whether you're a master, you are equal under the same Lord. And so though he does not seek to dismantle the whole system, as he talks about the unity and the equality that exists in Christ, it eventually undid the system. Praise God. This fuse was a new spirit-filled approach to being under authority and to being in authority. That's what we're going to talk about. How do you work when you're under authority? How do you work when you're in authority? That's what Paul addresses. That's where we're going to go. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would give us open ears, regardless of our situation, that we would hear from you today how to honor you in our work. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I'm aware that some of you are under authority. Most of us are under authority. You answer to somebody. You answer to some group of people. You have a commanding officer. You have a boss. You have a coach. You have a teacher. You have somebody that you are responsible to answer to. How do you work when you're under authority? Well, that's the first group that Paul addresses, how to work under authority. And there's three things that Paul tells us here in this passage about how to work when you're under authority. Authority. The first thing he says is work obediently. Look at verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. If you're under authority, that authority is from God and you need to obey it. Now get this, the scripture over and over in a number of places talks about that if you have to choose between obeying man and obeying God, you obey God. You disobey the human being if they're telling you to sin against God, okay? But if, they're, if it's not a sin thing, if it's not a moral thing, then you obey the authority. And you have to do your job. I know a lot of people, when you're in a job you don't like, I know I've been in this kind of situation, you're in a job that doesn't really light you up, you don't feel really passionate about it, there's something else you'd rather do, it's very easy at that point to stop doing your job and to start thinking about how all the other people should do their job, how you would do that job better. When you're under authority, do the job you're told to do and do your job. When I was first hired in ministry, I was hired to do adult ministry, to work with people, almost all of whom were older than me, and I was leading a small group ministry and men's ministry and stuff like that, and what I really felt passionate about was college ministry. 
And so I would volunteer in the college ministry until it got to the point where I realized, you know what, my best attention and energy is actually going to the college ministry. I need to step out of volunteering there, and I need to do my job. It's also important probably to say you probably won't get opportunities to do the job you want to do if you don't do the job you're supposed to do well. Do your job. Are you doing the job you've been asked to do? Are you doing the job you've been paid to do? Are you daydreaming about some other job you'd like to do? When you're under authority, first, work obediently. Second, work with sincere respect. Work with sincere respect. Respect is the idea that comes through in that phrase, fear and trembling. He says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, you hear fear and trembling, especially in this context in slavery, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, what a pejorative thing to say. Like, you should just obey with fear and trembling. And actually, this is kind of a euphemism Paul uses a number of places just to describe respect. He says in 1 Corinthians 2 that when he came to the Corinthians, he came to them with much fear and trembling. What's Paul saying? He's saying, I came to you respectfully. He says in 2 Corinthians 7 that after Paul had sent Titus to go minister to the church there in Corinth, that he was so encouraged that they had received Titus with fear and trembling. They'd received him respectfully. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to respect people. Now, even if they're not that respectable, to work in a way under authority that honors Christ is to give respect even where it's not due. Some of you that served in the military, you know this phrase, salute the rank and not the person. Sometimes you got to do that. Sometimes the person you work for, sometimes the person that has authority, they're not that respectable, but you treat them with respect. And this respect is to be sincere. Do you see what it says? Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Sincere means upright. It means pure genuine. All right, we can kind of respect people, but it can be pretty insincere. I read this and I thought of my eighth grade keyboarding class with Mr. Carpenter. And I went to a middle school, it was right next to a high school, and I don't know if we just didn't have typewriters. Do y'all know what typewriters are? Some of you, some of you, you, know, you know what a typewriter is? It's like a lame computer. And so we learned keyboarding on a, on a typewriter, and we had to go to the high school for keyboarding class, and Mr. Carpenter, who was this crusty, crotchety, angry old man, had like, I guess, gotten punished by teaching eighth grade keyboarding. And I'll just never forget, A-S-D-F-J-K-L semicolon. A-S-D-F-J-K-L semicolon. A-S-D-F-J-K-L I mean, it was like a drill sergeant. And none of us liked him, and he didn't like us very much. And I remember, you know, from time to time, he would leave the class and give us an assignment to do, and then he'd come back. Well, this one particular day, he gave us an assignment to do. We were supposed to work on it, and then he left, but he didn't come back. And so, like, a lot of time has passed, and you know how things get. Like, we were doing the assignment at first, but then someone realizes he isn't coming back. And so a kid goes up to the front of the class and starts going, A-S-D-F-J-K-L semicolon. Well, what the kid didn't think about was that the room we were in actually had a subdivided wall that didn't go all the way to the top. And Mr. Carpenter had gone out of our room and into the other room, climbed up on the counter, and was standing over the wall watching. And so when all of a sudden we heard, hey, 
it was like the whole class jumped and freaked out. Why? Because we had been, you know, we were respectful in the moment, but, but not really. When he wasn't there, our, our respect was clearly not sincere. It wasn't pure. It wasn't genuine. Let me ask you this. Do those in authority over you feel respected by you? Oh, well, I respect them. That's what people say that don't respect them. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't know why I got to show respect. I mean, I do respect them. If they don't feel respected, it's probably the case that you're not respecting authority from a sincere place. And this can be very hard. So how do you begin to move that way? Well, that's the third thing Paul says, is that when you're under authority, you need to work to be seen by Jesus, not people. Ultimately, you're obeying Jesus, not people. Look at verses 6 to 8. He says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bond servant or free. Four times Jesus is mentioned in this verses 5 to 8. As you would Christ, it says in verse 5. In verse 6, as bondservants of Christ. Verse 7, goodwill as to the Lord. Verse 8, receive back from the Lord. Jesus is mentioned four times. Why? Because when you're working under authority, the ultimate person you're working for is Jesus. Not primarily your boss, not primarily an organization. Jesus. He's the authority that you answer to. And he's the one, if you work for him, it then allows you to give respect even when it's difficult. After my freshman year of college, I played with an organization called Athletes in Action, played on a baseball team that summer. And guys from all over the country, college baseball players, we got together. And in the mornings, we would do discipleship. And in the afternoons and evenings, we'd play games and uh, play baseball. And it was a great, absolutely wonderful growing experience. And I remember that summer, they were trying to teach us how do you integrate your, your faith with your sport? And there was a principle that they talked about all the time. And it was this. You play before an audience of one. You play before an audience of one. Doesn't matter if your parents are in the stands. Doesn't matter if a cute girl's in the stands. Doesn't matter if scouts are in the stands. They said, picture every game, there's one person in the stands, and it's Jesus. You play for him. You play as hard as you can for him. You try as hard as you can for him. You try to be as good of a teammate as you can for him. Why? Because you're playing for an audience of one. This is the opposite of what Paul calls eye service. Do you see that in verse 6? Not by the way of eye service. I love that phrase. It's just so descriptive. Eye service is what we were given to Mr. Carpenter. We look good in the moment, but, but you know, we don't really actually care. That's eye service. Paul says, no, 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 don't just do eye service. Anyone can work hard when the boss is around. But, but if you work for an audience of one, the boss is always around. There's an attention to detail. There's an excellence that you give to your work when you do it for Christ, when you don't just do eye service. Have you ever had the chance to go to the Statue of Liberty? I, I've never gotten to go. I'd love to, I'd love to see it someday. There's an amazing detail about the Statue of Liberty. At the top of the Statue of Liberty, look at the detail that the sculptor gave to the hair. Now, here's what's amazing about this. The Statue of Liberty was completed 
20 years before airplanes were invented. Here's, here, here's what that means. The, the guy who put all that attention to detail did not think anyone would ever see it. He didn't think, oh, they'll fly over this and see. No, he just was doing his job well. And that's what you do when you're not worried about eye service. Why do you do this? Well, because in verse 8, it tells us that Jesus is the one who notices and Jesus is the one who rewards. Look at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Now, you got to get the tone of this because this is so key. When I say, hey, you, you play before an audience of one, you work before an audience of one, there's this sense of like, Jesus is watching. What kind of a job are you going to do? Jesus is looking. But that's not the tone of verse 8. What's the tone of verse 8? Jesus is watching. Jesus is looking. Jesus is noticing. Hey, do your work for him because he sees it. Right? You probably do a job in a place with no one that notices and no one that sees. And you do all kinds of things that no one sees but Jesus. But Jesus sees it. And Paul says Jesus doesn't just see it, but he's eager to give you back, to reward you for the work that you do. That's a beautiful thing. One of the shows that our family loves to watch is Undercover Boss. You ever watch that show? It's all on Netflix now, and you can watch the whole thing. And, and it, the, the whole idea of it is, if you haven't seen it, is that there's a CEO or a president of a company, or usually someone that's high up in the company, and they go undercover in their large organization, and they typically do three or four different jobs that typically they would never do, never know how to do, not usually be good at, and they do it in different locations where people don't know they're the boss, undercover boss. And uh, the first one, I think, was waste management, which is great great show. And what's always fun about the show is of the three or four people that they work with, there's always one who like really is bad. They treat them poorly. They treat customers poorly. They cut corners. They do all that sort of stuff. And the reveal at the end is amazing when they come in and go, oh, that was you? You didn't go well. But here's what I love. In the show, it's not mostly that. It's mostly two or three or four people who did a great job, who served somebody that no one else was serving, who noticed details that no one else was noticing, who really displayed a passion for it, not because they were working for the boss who they knew what was there, but the boss still saw it because the boss was undercover. Get this. Jesus is the ultimate undercover boss. He sees it, and he notices it. This is what I love about that show, is that the very first show, that one with Waste Management, they see all this great work that the people do, and uh, the show hadn't really evolved much yet, and so the, the boss is like, hey, I just noticed what a great job you did, and I just, I want to tell you, great job. By like season four, the boss is like, hey, I noticed what you did, and I want to pay for you to go to college and for your family to go to Hawaii. I mean, the war rewards just get awesome. The reward's awesome. Because Jesus sees, and Jesus notices. Jesus pays attention. When you're under authority, you're not serving your boss. You're serving your Lord. Now, this is where most of the household codes of antiquity stop. There's lots of these household codes in ancient literature that describe how husbands should treat wives and wives should treat husbands and kids and parents should relate and how slaves should obey. But none of them do what Paul does next. 
Because Paul doesn't stop where all the other household codes stop. He continues and addresses masters. He says, here's how to work when you have authority. See, some of you are under authority, but some of you have it. And my guess is probably in, an, in a church like ours, there's a lot of you that have both. You're both under authority and you have authority. You have a boss and you are a boss. But how do you work when you have authority? That's what Paul talks about next. And here he says, you too, number one, show respect. Look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. You might just read over that verse if you read it quickly. But look at what Paul's saying. He's just told slaves, hey, listen, be respectful, be sincere, do this from a true heart, serve the Lord. That's who you're really serving. Masters, do the same thing. So masters, be respectful. Tim Kimmel said this last week. If you weren't with us last week, you got to go online and watch or listen to Tim Kimmel's sermon on parenting last week. One of the things that so impacted me, and I've talked to other people who said this impacted them, was he said, listen, if you want your kids to be respectful to you, you have to be respectful to them. They're people. They're image bearers. That's what Paul's saying. saying these, these slaves, these aren't just property to you, Christian. These are your brothers. So do the same to them. Be respectful. Let me ask those of you in authority. Do those under your authority feel respected by you? Or do they just feel used? Show respect. Second thing, when you have authority, Paul says, is you should stop threatening. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. You all have seen this, and some of us were ashamed to admit have been this person. You've seen the person in the grocery store who the kid just keeps getting the candy off the shelf, and the parent keeps saying no, 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 or they keep getting this or that, and eventually you see the parent who just absolutely berates the kid. You're so stupid. How many times do I have to tell you no? Don't you know what's going to happen? Do you want to leave right this moment? You've seen that. Some of us have been that. That is ugly. And you know what's so ugly about it? Is the power differential. What's the kid going to do? The kid has no power. And the parent is bowing up and threatening and look at how big and look at how tough and look at how loud and look at how angry I am. And you watch that in other people especially and you go, that's really ugly. That's what Paul's saying. Don't, don't treat people like that. Yeah, you have power. Yeah, you have authority. But don't bow it up to intimidate people, to put them in their place, to show them who you are. Now, get this. This doesn't mean that if you're in a position of authority, you can't warn people. God has ultimate authority, and the scriptures are filled with God not threatening us, but warning us. See, if you keep going down this path, let me tell you where it goes. And it's entirely appropriate if you have authority to say to someone who's underperforming or who has a bad attitude or whatever the case might be, hey, listen, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what needs to change. Here's what's expected. If this doesn't change, there's going to be consequences. That's not threatening. That's warning. Threatening is, is about you. Warning is about them. It's loving them. It's saying, hey, I don't want to see you go down this road. This is not good. Threatening is about, let me show you how powerful and tough and mean I can be. Are you using your power for you or for those under you? Third thing Paul says, in addition to showing respect and stopping threatening, is to see yourself under the true master. 
See yourself under the true master. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. He says, listen, masters, you think you have this power? You do. You think you have authority? You do. Do you know where it comes from? Jesus. He's the true master. He's the Lord. That's what that word means. Lord means master. So you may think, oh, I got all this power but you answer to someone too. You don't get authority unless it's from God. That's what Jesus told Pilate. Pilate was this Roman, this Roman official who thought he had so much power. He's questioning Jesus and confronting Jesus, and Jesus isn't answering back. And Pilate says, hey, don't you know the authority I have? Don't you know what I could do? And you know what Jesus says? You'd have no authority at all if it wasn't given you from above. Any authority you have, it's, it's from him. Now, here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine how empowering this would have felt to be a slave. You might want to go ahead and get that. They're, they're urgent. It's okay. You, you can take it if you need to. Imagine, get this, imagine how this would have felt to, to be a slave and to hear a master told hey, they're going to answer too. See, see, I think we, when we read this stuff, we, we sort of get it out of its historical situation, right? We sort of imagine, well, there was probably a slave church and they got Paul's letter and they were told, hey, make sure you obey your master, be respectful, blah, blah, blah. And then we imagine, well, there was probably like a master church and the master church, hey, make sure you don't abuse people and you know, go ahead and treat them with respect too. But that's not how it worked. The way it really worked was there was one church made up of Jew, Gentile, men, women, slave, and free. And it wasn't a very big church, right? It probably would have been a church even smaller than this middle section. Everyone look at this middle section just to make all of them feel so uncomfortable. This would have been the size maybe of a large church in Ephesus. And they would have gotten a letter from Paul and they would have all been addressed. And so just imagine, this is the way it happened. They would get the letter. Someone would be brought up front to read you the letter. Hey, hey, hey. We just heard from Paul. Who's who's Paul? He's the guy that started this church a number of years ago, and he travels around, and he starts all these churches, and he tells us how to live in the faith. Oh, wow. What's he say? And so you start reading the letter. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Bill? You see Frank over there, right? You're You're his servant. You're his slave. Obey him. Don't, don't do this eye service thing. Don't just do it when he's looking. But, but you know what? You ultimately, Bill, you serve Christ. And Frank's over there going, yeah. You tell him what to do. That's pretty great. And then the letter goes, masters, do the same to them. Hey, Frank. You know how you like to threaten Bill? Who's sitting right over here? You can't treat him like that anymore. As you answer to Jesus too. Think how Bill feels when he hears that. That's unbelievable. W- what is Paul doing? He's saying we're equal in Christ. You're still a slave. You're still a master. You're still a Jew. You're still a Gentile. You're still a man. You're still a woman. It's not like all that goes away. But we are one in Christ. Why? Because we serve one master and it's Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is Lord of all. Because Jesus owns everything. Because Jesus is the ultimate master. 
who became a slave so that he could reign and rule over all things, making all things new. That's who Jesus is. And in Christ, we're one. Do you see how that could begin then to undermine the institution of slavery? To light the fuse that eventually would help people respond in a better way. Get this. Jesus is Lord of all. Every square inch belongs to him. What work is about is saying, what are my inches that he's entrusted to me? He has every square inch. He's entrusted me with a few. How do I handle those well? Maybe it's school. Maybe it's being a full-time mom or dad. Maybe it's being an important boss in some place. Maybe it's being an entrepreneur. Maybe it's being a police officer. Maybe it's being a teacher. Maybe it's being a pastor. What's your inch? What are your inches? Serve Christ in those places. He's watching, and he's eager to reward you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word and how it forms us and shapes us and helps us to develop and grow. And God, we ask you now that you would give us your spirit. God, this kind of approach to work, this doesn't happen without the spirit of God coming and filling us. And so we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, giving us a new kind of praise, a new kind of gratitude, a new kind of humility, and a new kind of approach to authority as well. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.